Hi everyone, welcome to the GMAT show, a GMAT club podcast where we talk about all the things related to GMAT. We conduct sessions on GMAT prep, GMAT test taking strategies, GMAT debriefs from successful GMAT test takers and also give free advice to our community. My name is Nikhil and I'm the director of MBA forums here at GMAT club. In today's session, we have Toffel, a GMAT club member who started with a score of 610 but achieved a score of 760 in the actual GMAT, a 150-point improvement in just a few months of time. Charles, also known as GMAT Ninja, will be your host for this session. Take it away, Charles. Hello, everybody. Charles from GMAT Ninja here. And I am here today with Toffel, coming to us from Sweden. And he is a guy that started at a 610 on the GMAT and recently scored a 760. Nice 150-point improvement in just a few months. And Toffel is going to tell us a little bit about his experiences, what worked for him, what didn't work. And hopefully you'll get something out of that and it'll help you with your prep. Toffel, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I, I'm excited to be here. I, I think it's going to be fun. Awesome. So the first thing I would like to ask people in these interviews Tell us a little bit about that initial experience. There was a 610. Tell us a little bit about that test, how you felt afterwards, and kind of what your goals were, and kind of how you regrouped from there. Yeah, so uh, I took my first uh, mock test uh, back in August of 2019. And uh, at this point, I wasn't really sure uh, what kind of schools I was aiming for. Um, and I, I was just kind of you know, curious uh, as to how well I would do on the exam. Uh, and at that point, I wasn't really sure about how to feel about this score. I, I didn't really know what was realistic to expect. Uh, but um, what I had gathered from looking at a few different business schools that I was semi-interested in was that uh, I was going to have to get at least around a, a 650. So that was sort of my, my minimum goal, I guess you could say. Um, and at that point, I was pretty sure that I had around four months to prepare. Uh, so I, I was pretty certain that I, I was going to get at least a 650. It, it seemed like a reasonable improvement at the time. Uh, but my goal um, ultimately was to, was to break the 700 mark. Um, so that's kind of how, how I was feeling at the time. Awesome. And can you tell us what your splits were, the quantum verbal scores on that that first practice test? Uh, yeah, I it was 35 on verbal and 38 on quant. So not great on quant. Excellent. So tell us what, what happened from there. So what kind of study plan did you create for yourself? How hard were you working initially after you saw that 38 quant, 35 verbal? Yeah, so throughout my prep, I, I kept up a pretty decent uh, study pace. Um, you know, I, I'm a student, so I would have things going on in the day, but I would try to squeeze in about an hour of prep each day on the, week, on the, on the weekdays. And then uh, towards the weekend, I would uh, get in about two to three hours a day. Uh, but when I was first starting out, I was studying very inefficiently. Um, I was used to the way you study in, in high school, for example, where you just do old exams uh, all, all the time uh, and, until you get better at it. That, that's how I was used to studying. So I would just do uh, you know, the, the official guide questions. And I, I wasn't really improving much uh, until I, I realized that I had to learn a lot of different strategies for, for tackling uh, certain problems. Uh, and Eventually, I switched over to the, the Manhattan books, 
And that's when I, I started seeing some serious uh, score improvements. Okay, so how long did it take before you realized that the strategy of just test after test after test and practice questions wasn't working for you? So how long did it take for you to make that transition over to the Manhattan Guides? Um, it, I guess it took a, about a month maybe. Uh, at first I, w I was just doing lots and lots of uh, practice problems uh, from the official guide. And uh, I, I was sort of tracking my progress by looking at how, how long I was taking on each question and how many of them I was getting right and so on. Uh, and I could tell I was, I was doing decent, I guess, but there was no real improvement. And eventually I, I, I started looking for um, what kind of study material that other people were using. And everybody was just mentioning the Manhattan books. So eventually I, I looked them up and uh, got myself a set of them and turned out they were, they were pretty good. And had you, were you taking more practice tests before you made that transition over to the Manhattan Guides? Um, yeah, I, I took a couple of, of them. Uh, when I started out, I was doing practice tests about once a month to sort of gauge how I was doing. Uh, and then later on, I bumped it up to about once a week to, to track my progress a little better. Cool. So before you started the Manhattan Guides, you were kind of still stuck in the low 600s, mid 600s? Yeah, mid 600s. So like 620 to 650, around about there. And then when did you take your first official GMAT prep practice test? Um, that was 1st of November, 2019. Okay, so that was a, a good ways down the road after you started with the Manhattan Guides. So you started with the Manhattan Guides in September, October? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, and tell us a little bit more about how you use them and, and how you sort of balanced once you started in those Manhattan Guides. How much time did you spend on quant versus verbal? And how much time did you spend kind of reading through the books versus doing, let's say, exercises in the official guide? Yeah, so um, the thing about the Manhattan Guides is that they have a lot of good uh, tips, a lot of good strategies, but um, it's, it's kind of light on the uh, practice problem uh, side of it. So what I would do is kind of uh, go through a section of the uh, of the book uh, that touches on a certain type of problem, say overlapping sets maybe for quant, and then I'd I'd go on GMAT Club and do a lot of those uh, a lot of practice problems that had to do with that specific subject, so that I could practice the uh, the technique that I just uh, read about, and just try to apply that and try to um, internalize uh, using that strategy um, without having to. I, I guess my goal was to to be able to see a problem and know instantly what strategy to use without having to think about it too much. Yep. So about how many, as you're using the GMAT, questions on GMAT Club kind of in conjunction with those Manhattan kind of theory and information guides, tell us a little bit more about how many questions you were doing at a time and which question resources you were you were looking for as you practice some of these, these specific topics. Yeah, so um, I, I sort of, made it a system to, um, when, I, when I was doing practice questions, I wanted to also practice time management at the same time. And also very important, to, uh, I, I wanted to practice stamina uh, and be able to stay concentrated for a long time. So I would try to do maybe 20 questions in a row and then I'd go back and analyze them uh, one by one to, to see what I, what I did wrong or maybe what I did really good. Outstanding.
And were there particular question sources you were looking for when you were kind of using, I assume you were kind of using the, the question search feature on GMAT Club? Yeah, the, the, yeah I was using the, the question bank on, on GMAT Club. And I would mostly use uh, the Manhattan questions and Veritas and The Economist, because mm -hmm. those were the ones that I found were most similar to um, the, the official questions. And then sometimes, if I wanted some really hard quant questions, I would go for eGMAT because they had some some pretty hard ones. Outstanding. And then were you still using the official guide alongside all of this, or had you already pretty much exhausted it at that point? Uh, I, I was using the official guide questions sort of on and off throughout my prep, you could say. Uh, I think I went through um, the the main official guide and then the uh, you know the the extra quant book and the extra verbal book I think both I went through all of those twice so um, the, the, the they're pretty good in that all, all the questions are original um, you know that they're they're good questions right and uh, it's it's very easy to do a lot of them in a row and and to practice your stamina without any inter interruptions. So I was I was doing them sort of continually. Excellent. And then tell me when you felt like you really started to turn a corner. So was there a moment in your prep when you started to say, "Oh, wait a minute, I can do better than a six fifty. Maybe I can do better than a seven hundred. Was there kind of a turning point for you? Maybe some number of weeks after you started in the Manhattan guides? Uh, I think that the most significant one was when I did my first uh, uh, official. Uh, mock test when I scored a 770 after having scored 660 in my on my previous one which was about a month before awesome so, and and that was you said beginning of November uh yeah right. right okay so you started studying originally in in August that was the 610 that you got on that that initial economist practice test so about a month of kind of spinning your wheels lots of practice problems in the official guide some practice tests here or there and then we get to early November. By then, you'd already been in the Manhattan Guides for a month, month and a half. Yep. Plenty of question banking on GMAT Club. Boom, there's a 770. So tell me what you did from there, because I, if if I remember correctly from your forum post, lots of practice tests from there. But did did that did seeing that 770 change change your study strategy at all? Um, not really. I I just uh, kept on uh, working with the Manhattan books because uh, they had. A lot of good uh, strategies that I, I still had to learn because uh, I, I, I hadn't exhausted them uh, by any means. Um, so I, I just kept on working with them. Awesome. And about how much of your time, kind of over the, the course of the three or four months you spent studying, about what proportion of your time was spent on verbal versus quant? Right. So um, when I took my first, uh, uh, my first mock test, I I sort of realized that uh, on, on the verbal side, uh, sentence correction and critical reasoning were pretty decent from the start, right? So I knew I wouldn't have to study too much uh, to score well on those. But when it came to critical reasoning and quant especially, uh, I knew I had a lot to work with. So I, I think I spent about 70% on quant and maybe 30% on verbal. And then verbal is focused mostly on critical reasoning. Can you tell us a little bit more about that breakdown of how much time you spent oh, uh, on, on the verbal question types? Uh, on the on the verbal, I, I was focusing on reading comprehension. Maybe, uh, maybe okay. I maybe I said it wrong. <laughs> uh, 
but but yeah, I uh, I was doing poorly on reading comprehension. Gotcha. At, at first. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I think you said you were doing well on sentence correction, critical reasoning, and then I think later you said badly on critical reasoning. So oh. gotcha. So it was the reading comp that was the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so since I'm already getting lots of questions from the audience, and audience again, don't be shy. Um, getting questions already about verbal a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what you did on reading comprehension. For you, is it just kind of a matter of getting lots of practice and getting used to kind of the stamina of fighting your way through passages? Was there something specific in the Manhattan Guides? Tell us what you think did the trick there, because obviously the 760, you knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, on reading comprehension, especially, that's sort of around the time when I, I realized how much impact uh, sleep and food has on your performance. Uh, it's it's such an obvious thing, uh, but that you maybe don't really think about uh, when you're studying. Because for me, it was like um, when I, if I hadn't slept very well the night before, or if I hadn't eaten in a while, then when I was doing uh, reading comprehension, my thoughts would begin to wander and I would find it difficult to concentrate and I'd have to uh, go back and read uh, a sentence several times before I really understood what it meant. And uh, what, what I realized what was that uh, the one thing that would improve my performance the most was just uh, getting a good night's sleep and eating well. And then when I was, uh, uh, if, if, when I was doing my reading comprehension, it, it was almost as if I entered sort of like a, a Zen-like Zen state where I was, I was able to concentrate 100% and everything seemed to make sense. And it, when I read the questions, it, it always felt obvious which ones were the right one, which ones were the, were the right answers. And um, uh, yeah, so, so that's the, I would say that's the, the one thing that helped me the most on reading comprehension, but it was also a matter of, uh, of note taking because I, I noticed that that impacted my performance quite a bit, being able to take uh, the right amount of notes and also taking notes at all because it, it sort of forces you to, to, to concentrate and to, uh, to really comprehend what you're reading. So say a little bit more about that. Was there a particular structure you're using to take notes? Was it something you learned from Manhattan or somewhere else or describe that um, a little bit for us? Yeah, the, the Manhattan books uh, have a, a pretty good strategy that I would use. And they, they have uh, two different strategies, depending on if it's a, a short passage or a long passage. Um, and uh, I, I distinctly remember on the long passages, it was very important to understand the, uh, the, first, um, the first paragraph. And then on the, on the uh, later, like two or three paragraphs, it was very important to understand like the, the first sentence of each of them. And uh, I remember I had one of these like, like, like rules when I was uh, taking notes uh, that I, I, I would try to limit it to like eight words per, per paragraph uh, because I, you know, you don't want to take too long taking notes and you're not, you're not expected to, to use them afterwards anyways, just to help you stay concentrated. And was there anything in particular? So those, I, I love that strategy. So writing about eight words on, <clears throat> excuse me, on every paragraph just to keep yourself engaged and help you think about what's happening. Was there anything in particular that you were going after with those eight words? Was it trying to write down a key detail or the purpose of the paragraph or anything like that? Or was it just kind of something you were doing and, and you weren't worried too much about what exactly those eight or so words said? Yeah, so my, my strategy was kind of, 
um, whenever I had uh, finished or almost finished a, par a paragraph, I would try to sort of summarize it as simply as I could in my head to make sure that I, I really understood it. Um, so I would try to just make it as simple as possible. Like, um, like it obviously it depends on what the passage is about, but I would try to summarize it like children are being poisoned by, uh, I don't know, dirt in the environment and people are trying to stop it. Something like that, you know? So keeping it super, super short yeah, and just yeah. making sure that you took a moment, thought through the, the paragraph a little bit before moving on. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, so you mentioned earlier that early on in your prep, you were spending about an hour or so per weekday studying and then maybe two or three hours per weekend day. Yeah. And did that stay pretty consistent throughout even after you started using the guides or did you increase that pace at all later? Um, I, I kept it mostly consistent uh, up until maybe the last, the last two weeks where I bumped it up quite significantly. But up until then, I, I kept it mostly consistent, yeah. And then those last two weeks, tell us a little bit more about that and what you were doing in terms of how much you were studying and did what you studied, did the resources you used, did that change at all at the end? Yeah, so um, I, I planned my, uh, my GMAT uh, test day appointment so that it was, um, uh, I, I scheduled it like uh, about 10 days after my final exam before Christmas. Awesome. So that way I, I knew that I would have a lot of time where I wasn't really busy with anything and where I could focus solely on the GMAT. And at that point, I had exhausted the Manhattan books and the official guides. And I was pretty much just uh, brushing up on some concepts that I was still a little bit unsure about. And I was also doing a lot of uh, practice problems on, uh, you know, the, the, the GMAT club uh, question banks just practicing a lot of uh, stamina and uh, practicing time management, also doing a, a couple of uh, mock tests. Awesome. And it sounds like obviously on your test day, your mind was right, you were rested, you were ready to have a great performance. And I know that you must have thought quite a bit about how to get yourself set up to have your best day. Tell us a little bit, bit yeah. more about that. What did you do in the days leading up, the night before? How did you make sure that you were gonna be the sharpest, smartest version of you on that test day? Uh, yeah, so uh, one of the things that I, I started doing um, uh, sort of in the, in the middle of my prep was uh, I, I I knew that I, I, I had scheduled uh, my tests in the morning. So I, I started taking all my mock tests in the morning just to get used to that. And uh, when you wake up, you it, it tends to take a little a little while before your brain is, is uh, before it starts working uh, at its full capacity, so what I was, what I would do was I would start taking cold showers before before every mock test, uh, just just to kickstart my brain uh, and uh, make sure I wasn't sleepy. Uh, so I did that on on test day as well, and uh, I, I think that may have contributed a little bit uh, to making me help concentrate. But it, it was also about uh, taking out as much uncertainty as I could. So during the tests, uh, or during the, the uh, days leading up to the tests, I sort of made a checklist of every single item that I would need to bring to the exam hall uh, so that uh, when I was packing my bag the night before, I would have no worries about forgetting anything and I could just go to sleep and didn't have to think about it anymore. 
And I would also uh, plan out the entire route to the test center uh, in advance and look it up on on uh, Google Street View, so I knew exactly what it looked like, and so there there was no uncertainty. Uh, and also, I I made sure to arrive an hour in advance, so I didn't have to worry about the tram being late or anything. Uh, and also, make sure to make made sure to sleep well. Uh, slept about ten hours. Uh, so yeah, uh, a, a lot of it was about uh, taking out the the uncertainty and just make, making sure I was really well rested. Outstanding. And it sounds like you did a nice job at making sure that you weren't burnt out through this process of studying for three or four months. It sounds uh, like you were thinking about yeah. that from the start and keeping it at a nice pace and not overdoing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, uh, I made sure to take the day before off and I, I didn't really do anything GMAT related. I, I did a couple of like reading comprehension and, and problem solving, mostly easy questions. Uh, it, it wasn't really meant to brush up on any knowledge that I had missed. It, it was more about just getting sort of an early warm up of, you know, get, get, just getting into the mindset of, of doing those types of questions. Excellent. And before we open this up to, to the audience questions, and again, folks, don't be shy. If you have questions for TOEFL, please put them in there and I'll do my best to get to everybody's questions. Um, just give us a little bit of background on you. So I know that you're in Sweden. I know you're a student. Tell us what you're studying. Tell us a little bit more about your MBA goals and where exactly are you in Sweden? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a student, as you said. Uh, I'm currently uh, studying a, a bachelor program in, in uh, economics with a focus on finance. and. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm planning on applying to a few different master's programs in finance. Um, so those are my goals. Uh, I've been looking at some different schools in, in France and uh, some in London as well. Excellent. So no plans for an MBA just yet. It's all just the master's in finance and staying within Europe. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. I, I really want to get some uh, advanced level uh, finance knowledge. Excellent. And do you have any any particular career goal at this point, or are you going to kind of see how the finance studies shake out? Um, I think I'll I'll see sort of how it goes, but I, I'd like to get into uh, the insurance industry. I think it's quite interesting. Excellent, excellent. Um, one last question. Tell us a little bit more. When you I know you spent about seventy percent of your study time on quant, and most of it was based around those Manhattan guides. Were there any particular pieces in there, any particular topics that you found especially valuable or that you'd recommend that people put extra time into? Yeah, so um, there were definitely some books that were way more useful than others. Um, I, I know geometry was pretty useful because triangles show up a lot on the GMAT. Um, and uh, yeah, the, that section on just, uh, just different kinds of triangles and the properties of them that was obviously Quite useful, but um, mostly it was about uh, the word problems book and the uh, uh, the book on number properties. Uh, for example, when you talk about primes and you know prime factors, because that stuff shows up all the time on the GMAT. But uh, the the most uh, important uh, the the most useful thing that I got out of the the Manhattan books was learning how to solve what I call uh, standardized questions, and these are questions where there's there's a way of approaching them or a way of drawing them out or or something like that that doesn't really change from question to question so you can sort of uh, apply the same strategy almost every time and it'll it'll pretty much work every time so 
Uh, these are questions like uh, like overlapping sets, for example, where there's, there's a table you can draw that keeps track of everything and makes it very easy. Also like work rate problems and like weighted averages when you have like a mixture problem. There's something called the seesaw method for solving that. Uh, and also for, for problem solving, there are these questions where they ask like, what is y in terms of x, you know? And uh, for that, there's also a strategy that you just apply that works every time. And uh, th those were very important for me uh, because w when I had learned that, I had a, a strategy that allowed me to, uh, to just approach the question without having to put much thought into it. Uh, and I think that was also Im important when it came to managing my time so I didn't have to think about how I was going to approach uh, each, each of those problems. Outstanding. And actually, you just answered one of the next questions I was going to ask. This is, and I apologize if I uh, butcher the pronunciation. Sakar was asking um, on the quant section, how do you suggest I approach problem solving and data sufficiency questions to make sure the least time is spent on the actual solving part? Do you have anything to add beyond what you just said about kind of those standardized problems where there's a certain method? Was there anything else you did that kind of helped you with your efficiency on quant? Um, I, I think. Uh, well, one of the things that helped me uh, on on both quant and verbal actually was that uh, when I was starting out, I was or let me put it like this: uh, uh, when I when I was doing these questions, I would all I would make it a habit to sort of draw a, a long table where I had a row for each question, and and I had sort of a box that I could physically check off uh, for each. Um, uh, uh, for each uh, incorrect alternative. And before I did that, I, I was trying to uh, sort of keep it all in my head. And I know some of my friends do that too. And uh, what, what ended up happening was that I would waste time checking alternatives that I had already checked uh, because I, I, I'd forget which ones I had already checked. Uh, so by just having some something that I could physically check off made it much easier to keep track of everything and to not waste any time. And you're talking about kind of using cross-elimination on verbal and on yeah, yeah, data sufficiency, yeah. for example. Yeah. Outstanding, just making sure it's on your page so that you don't have to go, hmm, did I eliminate B? It's right there and you know what's what's still left. Yeah, uh, and for, for data sufficiency uh, in particular, uh, I think it's very important to just um, follow the, uh, you know, on, on in the Manhattan books, they have like a um, uh, sort of a process that you have to go through where you, you check the first alternative and then you can check off a few of them. And uh, I was following uh, this process meticulously to okay. uh, just to make sure I didn't waste any time and that I was doing it as efficiently as possible and not wasting time on checking anything that I didn't have to check. And, and it sounds like you're talking about Manhattan's method of AD and then BCE, and you yeah, cross out yeah, either yeah. A and D at the same time or BCE at the same time. Exactly. Um, interesting question. This, this might be a little bit of a tricky one to answer, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway, Tuffle. What's your suggestion about for how long we need to stay in a specific strategy before changing it? And I, and I assume that he's kind of referring to a study strategy overall. Um, did you ever feel the need to change strategies? Did you feel like part of your success was kind of sticking with one thing? And, and you did make a pivot about four or five weeks into your prep. How did you know that was the right time to make that pivot? And is there anything you can say to, to people who are studying in general about when to make a change to their study strategy? 
Um, yeah. So uh, during the the first sort of month or maybe first six weeks of my prep, when I was just uh, going through the official guide, I I would notice uh, when I checked uh, how many questions I got right and when I checked how long it took, I noticed that I wasn't really improving and I wasn't really learning too much. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of questions that would that I that I would see um, multiple times, like certain question types, like overlapping sets, that I I never knew how to solve in a in an efficient way. And so that's when I sort of realized that there there has to be a better way to solve this or a better way to, to draw it out or a, a system that I could use to solve it in an efficient way. And that's that's when I realized that the method I was using for studying wasn't effective and that I had to find something different. So it sounds like those pivots were kind of driven by the data. It sounds like you were, were you keeping an error log in a formal way or just kind of looking back at each set and being introspective about what went wrong? Uh, yeah, I I did keep an error log for the problems where uh, where I, I noticed something interesting. Maybe there was a method that I hadn't thought of using, or maybe I just thought it was a really good problem that tested uh, a certain ability. Um, but speaking of the error log, I, I don't think I used it in a very efficient way. I, I think I could have made a much better use of it uh, in retrospect. Uh, because for, for me, it just turned into sort of a, a collection of really hard questions that I could go through towards the end of my prep, whereas it, it should have been um, a way for me to sort of analyze much more of what I was doing wrong. Kind of along the way, using it yeah, periodically yeah, to say, yeah. what am I doing wrong? Where's the, the areas for improvement? Um, excellent. Um, I've got two questions here. I guess one's not really a question. So I've got one person who has a week to go for his GMAT. And again, apologies for any mispronunciations of names. Uh, Rishab is asking, I have one week to go for my GMAT. What do you think I should do in this end game? And I think you have a really interesting perspective on that. And uh, Sam is saying his GMAT, his or her, looks like his GMAT is tomorrow. Sam is one of those gender neutral names. So I'm going to eat light and sleep well. Um, do you have any last minute tips for, for those two as far as what to do in the week or the day before? Um, yeah, I, uh, w one of the things that I think is most important about, uh, the GMAT is knowing how to manage your time. Uh, you know, I, I've read countless debriefs on GMAT where they say, oh, I, I did my GMAT recently and I, I thought I was doing well. And then at the end, I realized that I had five questions left and only a minute left to solve them, you know, and the the GMAT doesn't mess around, you know. It, it's it's about managing time just as much as it's about uh, being able to actually answer the questions. So uh, my tip would be to have a backup plan if you realize that you're running low on time. And there there are quite a few techniques that you can that you can use to do this. Uh, one of the very simple ones is that if if uh, you know you're running low on time, you try to find a uh, a question that you know you you've gotten right. And then immediately after, you just skip the next question to, to save a bit of time and to avoid getting several questions wrong uh, in a row. And this is to, to just avoid having a lot of questions left at the end and getting that heavy score penalty from not being able to answer a bunch of questions in a row. And, and did you have any time management issues on your actual exam? Did um, 
not not too much. Uh, I had practiced it quite uh, quite extensively during my prep. Uh, so during uh, during quant and verbal, it was it was fine. Uh, I I did run into some issues though with my my writing assignment. I had some trouble. <laughs> Uh, coming up with uh, a, a third argument, and it, it took a bit of time. And I was, um, I was proofreading. I, I was still proofreading my text when I had like five seconds left, and I handed it in at, at the one second mark. So I, I, I think that could have been done a little better, maybe. <laughs> but that, it probably came out okay. Though I, I don't remember seeing your AWA score on there, but was your score? Uh, it, it, it it was fine. It, it was fine. Good. And the good news is it matters much less for graduate school admissions than obviously than your composite score. Yeah. Um, I know we touched on it earlier, but um, Legend Awesome, which I'm, I'm pretty certain is his or her real name, um, yeah. asks, uh, is saying that, that uh, he or she is really struggling with long reading comp passages. And I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but was there anything else you'd like to add that really helped you on those long passages? Because I know that that was, sounds like that was your biggest initial struggle on verbal. Um, anything else you'd like to add that might might help Legend Awesome? Um, when I was first starting out on uh, on reading comprehension, I noticed that I had a lot of issues with pacing. I was taking way too long uh, reading the passage, and as I said before, I, I think what helped one of the things that helped me the most was uh, having a good note taking strategy to force myself to stay focused and also to force myself to not take too long uh, writing notes either, uh, but to take just the right amount of notes, you know? Uh, but for me, it was also about um, doing a lot of uh, questions in a row to sort of get into a good flow and, uh, you know, to, to really get into it and get really concentrated, um, yeah. So typically when you practice reading comprehension, how many questions were you doing in a set? Um, I would probably try to do about maybe four or five uh, passages. So around 15 to 20 questions. Outstanding. So kind of from the start, you were thinking, I need to build stamina on this. So I'm going to sit down and try to get into the flow, get into the rhythm. And then obviously when you get to your actual test, your reading comp's broken up a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, 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 a lot of it was about building stamina, you know, and just being able to stay concentrated for a long time. And if I, I found that reading comprehension uh, questions were the most exhaustive out of the verbal questions, or the yeah, the, the most exhausting. Um, uh, so I found those were the ones where it was most important to you know to be used to doing a lot of questions in a row so that I wasn't surprised by anything on, on the test day. Excellent. And here's a question, another question from Sam that I, th I think um, you've touched on this also a little bit. How would you reconcile the different perspectives of those reading comp and critical reasoning answer choices in the context of the, of the passage? Um, so that takes up most of the time when there's kind of, I think the question is multiple perspectives in that passage. Is there something that you were doing to help organize and think through those perspectives that helped you? Yeah, um, that was part of my my note taking strategy uh, because uh, I noticed after a while that uh, the GMAT would, or when there was a reading comprehension passage where they were mentioning uh, different people who had different opinions, 
then there was almost always going to be a, a question about that later on. So I made sure to take notes of who was saying what and uh, to do that in a, in a very, very simple manner. So just uh, I, I would write down that this person thinks that this is bad. And this person thinks that this thing is good. And, and just make, make it as, as simple as possible so that I, I didn't get anything mixed up, you know? And I think you're also saying earlier, um, in, in case Sam missed this, that generally your notes were really, really lean. So a typical paragraph you said about eight words on average, something like that. Yeah, um, it was, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Manhattan books uh, have the strategy where uh, the notes you take are not for you to use uh, afterwards. You're, you're not supposed to use them. Uh, they're only there to help you concentrate and to to force you to look for things that are important that you can that you can just jot down on your paper really quickly. Outstanding. Um, question from Svetlana. And again, apologies if I uh, butcher any pronunciations of names here in the live audience. Um, what are the resources that you can recommend? So, aiming for a high score, you got your seven sixty. If you've exhausted Manhattan, Kaplan Advanced Quant, um, is there anything else that you ran into that you thought was useful? Um, once you've kind of used those Manhattan guides pretty thoroughly. Um, one of the things that I used, um, at least at the start of my prep, um, was uh, third-party uh, uh, mock tests, because I found that they often had really good diagnostic tools. Um, so that was a really good way for me to uh, to help along the way with uh, figuring out uh, what things I was struggling with and uh, what kind of questions I was taking a long time solving and which areas I was uh, which areas I was struggling with that I had where I had room to improve. Excellent. And which what section order did you use, and do you have any tips about which section to start with? Yeah. So. Uh, as I said, I was uh, I was mostly struggling with quant uh, at first, and I realized that uh, quant was the section where it was most important that I had uh, a fresh mind and that I, I wasn't exhausted in the slightest. So I picked quant first, and then verbal, and then uh, I had IR and uh, the writing assignment, uh, and those I, I didn't view them as as important as verbal and quant, so I just left them towards the end. Uh, where I, uh, where I could allow myself to be a little exhausted and to maybe not do hundred percent on them. So in your case, you started with this section that you thought was the toughest, that took the the biggest amount of energy for you, and then yeah, moved definitely. on to the verbal, which was a little bit um, took a little bit less out of you, and then obviously yeah. the the less important stuff at the end for you. Outstanding. Um, and we have a question about sense correction. I know that that wasn't a major focus of your prep. And I know that 70% of your time was spent on quant, but we're getting a ton of verbal questions. And I apologize, Toffel, it's probably partly my fault um, since my name's on the video. Um, the question is, how do you approach a sentence correction question? So just kind of tell it, walk us through your thought process, because that was something it sounds like it came naturally to you. You practiced some, did phenomenally on it. Tell us kind of how your thought process went. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, l languages in general has always been not too difficult for me, uh, especially things like grammar. And uh, I, I know this tends to be pre pretty bad advice for some people, but for me, it was mostly about just uh, 
just reading the sentence and seeing if it if it made sense in my head because uh, it was pretty easy for me to notice if um, uh, if, if something seemed off with the sentence uh, maybe uh, you know subject or verb wasn't uh, if, if they didn't have the same you know singular plural uh, thing uh, so for me it was just about uh, checking whether it sounded right in my head. And it sounds like what you're also saying, so you, you've had enough grammar training that for you, there was a really tight link between what sounded funny to you and what was mechanically wrong. So you could kind of hear or feel those those grammatical mistakes, a subject verb mistake or pronoun error. It sounds yeah. like that comes intuitively to you. Yeah, um, I know um, people tend to recommend that, especially native English speakers, um, shouldn't use this method because sometimes in your everyday speech you you might use uh, grammatical constructions that aren't grammatically correct per se uh, and so it, uh, it it might be dangerous if you use that uh, method but but for me it, it worked out fine and I think there's a bunch of people watching that might be jealous um, out of curiosity uh, just give everybody some context because um, one one of the joys of verbal prep is that depending on your relationship with the English language and kind of how you've been trained and how good your grammar training is or your writing training even, it might very, very much change how what the optimal approach is for you. You mentioned you're good at languages. Um, I'm curious, how many languages do you speak? Um, tell me a little bit about kind of when you learned which languages growing up. Uh, yeah, I, I've been learning English um, pretty much continually in, uh, in my daily life, I guess you could say, so ever since I was in like first grade, uh, I used to watch a lot of YouTube. I used to play a lot of video games, and uh, I was sort of exposed to the English language pretty much all the time. So uh, I guess it was natural that I, I learned it pretty well. Uh, and yet, you also asked uh, how many languages I know. Uh, obviously, I'm a native Swedish speaker, and I know English and I know some basic Spanish and a bit of Russian as well. Russian, interesting. But what, what inspired you to learn Russian out of curiosity? And then we'll go back mm -hmm. to the GMAT. What inspired you to learn Russian? Um, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I, also I've, I've uh, sometimes uh, played some video games with Russians and it's fun if you know the language. Outstanding, fantastic. Um, my, my family is uh, Ukrainian and Russian, so, so I have a soft spot for, for the Russian language. But that's beside the point. Um, a lot of the questions I'm seeing now are things we've already answered earlier. So um, some of you, we, we have already kind of talked about sort of uh, TOEFL's choice of, um, of section order. Um, I broke up the sections, undergrad major, some of that. And I'm, I'm still getting questions about kind of the timing on the verbal section. Did you finish with time to spare or did you finish just on time or did you have to scramble a little bit at the end? Uh, yeah, so with verbal, I, I realized uh, pretty early on in my prep that uh, the reading comprehension questions were the ones that took the longest and uh, sentence correction and critical reasoning tended to go by pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I was lucky and got quite a few reading comprehension passages uh, at the start and then um, towards the end. Uh, I, 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 I guess I, I was sort of encouraged by the fact that I, I knew that I had a lot of 
quote-unquote easy questions or quick questions left. Uh, so I guess that, that was sort of encouraging to me. And I, I didn't end up having any any time issues on uh, verbal to speak of, really. Excellent. And were you tracking the number of reading comp passages that you'd seen, or did you just kind of have a vague feeling that you already gotten through the worst of it? Yeah, I, I know there were going to be around four on, on the test. And I, I was sort of keeping it in, in the back of my mind because I, I didn't want to end up with, um, with, for example, eight minutes left and then seeing uh, a long reading comprehension passage uh, because I knew that those, uh, then I would have to see like four questions and they would take longer than two minutes each. Uh, so I, I was sort of tracking it in, in the back of my mind uh, to, sort of, to, to sort of have an idea of when the, the next uh, reading comprehension passage would, would, would arrive. Excellent. Just so that you knew what was coming after, coming next roughly, and yeah. knew whether you had to speed up a little bit at the end or not. So you were kind of counting, keeping track when you got to four, you knew you were okay and it was your your comfort zone after that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Fantastic. Interesting question. Did you find the verbal section funny or scary? Uh, neither. It, it was just verbal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess it, it, I guess reading comprehension was maybe a little scary because sometimes you get really difficult passages and you just need to power through them. And keep in mind that one of them is very likely to be experimental anyway. So yeah. if you get one that's really tough, do your best, keep moving. Yeah. Okay, I think we've answered pretty much everything that I think is answerable out of the audience questions. Um, is there any other advice you have for folks about how to prep, how to think about that that day of the test, day before the test, anything else you'd like to, to tell folks? Um, yeah, so uh, as we spoke about earlier, uh, I think the the, one of the important things uh, when it comes to dealing with stress on test day is just to make sure that there's no uncertainty, make sure that you you know everything that's going to happen so you don't have to worry about anything, um, anything unnecessary. And uh, I'd also like to say that uh, I, I, I guess I was fortunate enough to be able to get the GMAT all over and done with in about four months. Um, and uh, Sometimes when you read other people's stories, uh, you know, on, on GMAT Club where people share their debriefs, uh, it might seem like uh, the less you've studied, um, the more impressive your score is. Like sometimes you see uh, a story that says, oh, I, I, I studied for two weeks and I got like 730 or something. And, and that the score is more impressive because of that. But uh, I'm almost inclined to believe the opposite, you know, um, everybody's different and maybe maybe you're not the best at languages or maybe you're just not a maths person uh, and if you happen to be like that and you happen to be maybe at a little a little bit of a, a disadvantage uh, and you still manage to work hard and achieve a certain score then that just to me makes the score so much more impressive uh, take uh, Dee Cummins who you interviewed uh, before uh, who spent the be better part of three years working towards his, his 710. Uh, you know, it, to me, um, there's no doubt in my mind that that score is way more impressive than mine because he had to go through hell and back to get it. Uh, so my bottom line is that you shouldn't be discouraged if you end up taking a, l a little bit longer than others to reach 
your dream score. Uh, the important thing is that you keep trying. And if it does end up taking you a long time, then all that means is you're displaying an immense amount of uh, dedication to achieving something. And to me, that's, that's more impressive than anything. I love that. Couldn't agree more. And for anybody that hasn't seen the other video that uh, Toffel's referring to, we did an interview of a uh, GMAT Club user named D. Cummins. He spent 2,272 hours studying, meticulously documented it. That's probably a little bit of an underestimate. So more than 2,272 hours over three years studying, got a 710, absolutely earned it. Um, and one thing that I'll say in my experience tutoring people, the folks who work and work and work and then slave away at this, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for months or years at a time, believe me, MBA programs eventually notice that type of work ethic. It's gonna show up all over the place in your application in other ways. So that, that dedication pays off. Um, Toffel is a relatively lucky character, three or four months uh, to achieve 150 points. That's a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of dedication, some really smart study strategies you used. For a lot of people, it might be a lot longer than that. And that might be unpleasant to go through, but for a lot of people, it really, really pays off. Um, all right, I, and we're getting people commenting, it's been three and a half years for me, two plus years. This is often normal. You're gonna see plenty of people on GMAT Club who've been at this for years and years. Don't be discouraged. Um, Tuffle is obviously gifted in languages. Um, that might not be the case for you and it might be a lot harder to kind of get to the point where your English and your reading is at the level where you can get to a 710 or a 760. All right, I think this is a good good time to wrap up. Anything else at all you'd like to say, Tuffle, before we end the broadcast? Um, I don't think so. I, I think we, we covered most of the, the things that I wanted to say. Outstanding. Um, and Toffel, I think you'd make a fantastic teacher. So if you ever decide to go down that road, you have a wonderful way of explaining things. Um, you're already displaying this ability to kind of think through what other people are going through. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked at all to see you as a professor somewhere. If you're ever interested in GMAT tutoring, you know where to find me. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for watching.